Do you believe in our founders' vision for America? That our republic will only survive if we are an educated and informed people who know our rights and duties. Since 1844, Hillsdale College has sought to educate all who wish to learn about these timeless principles of self-government. For more than 50 years, the college has worked to spread that mission by sending Imprimus to millions of Americans. Imprimus features some of the best speeches given at Hillsdale events, and now an audio version of the Popular Speech Digest is available in a new podcast of the same name. And, like the print publication, Imprimus, the podcast, is always free. Listen to the best arguments from speakers such as Chris Rufo, Molly Hemingway, Mark Stein, and Hillsdale College President Larry Arne, read by Hillsdale students. Subscribe today to listen to Imprimus at podcast.hillsdale.edu. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. From the campus of Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, this is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, bringing the activity and education of the college to listeners across the country. Here's your host, Scott Bertram. Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. On this episode, we'll talk with John J. Miller from Hillsdale's Journalism Department about football safety and an attempt to save the sport back in the early 1900s. Kim Strassel from the Wall Street Journal on her book, Resistance at All Costs. Ben Beyer from Hillsdale's Education Department discusses rhetoric and will hear music and speeches from the recent dedication of the new Christ Chapel on the campus of Hillsdale College. First, we're joined now by John J. Miller, director of the Herbert H. Dow, the second program in American journalism at Hillsdale College. John, thanks for joining us. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. We speak now in the middle of football season, the NFL in full action, along with colleges and high schools, campuses around the country. And uh, still a, a point of discussion is um, is the violence and the injury potential from playing football. And it has been for a long time, as we're going to discuss in a moment, because John has uh, written a book that's been out for a couple of years now called The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. This goes back, of course, to the early 1900s. Today's injuries, today's violence, as bad as it seems, is nothing really compared to what it was, well, 120 years ago or so. No, it was way worse back then. And it's pretty bad right now. Concussions are a problem. Long-term health effects of head injuries are, is something that, that, that doctors and, 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 and leagues and, and, and everybody's studying want to understand how to keep the game safe for players right now. But it's also worth recognizing that a little more than a century ago, the game was much more violent and brutal than it is right now. For example, in the year 1905, 18 players died playing football. Uh, and and there, there are many more who had, who had grievous injuries, uh, cracked bones, all kinds of stuff. But 18 people died playing football. And this was at all levels, from, from kids in Sandlot games all the way up to big-time college football. There was, there was no professional football to speak of at the, at the time. But uh, uh, we don't see that today. Right. You know, you, you, you do see an occasional death, sometimes heat exhaustion, you know, sort of, you know, things like that happen. There, there are tragedies now, but it's not like what it once was. How does Teddy Roosevelt become a part of the football story? Roosevelt was a great fan of football. In fact, when he was a, a freshman at Harvard, in 1876, he went to the second ever game, football game, played between Harvard and Yale, one of the great rivalries in in American sports, and uh, became a fan of the game. Uh, grew up enjoying it. Uh, never played himself, but um, um, it, as it was becoming more and more popular in the 1880s and 1890s, starting to fill up stadiums on Thanksgiving Day and and that sort of thing. Uh, he was enjoying it more and more, and he was aware of this problem, that the game was brutal and violent and also incredibly popular. And um, so by the time he became president, he was, he was trying to think of ways to, to address this problem, and he, and, he, and, he, and he took action as president. 
Yes, before Roosevelt becomes involved or even becomes president, there's discussions about the violence. Uh, Harvard's president, uh, Charles Elliott, plays a role here. He wants to suspend intercollegiate play completely for football among colleges. So there was this big social and political movement of people who wanted to ban football because of the brutality. And its leader was this guy, Charles W. Elliott, the president of Harvard. And he was probably the most important figure in the history of American higher education, you know, at least before Larry Arn, of course. Uh, <laughs> but when, when, when we think of Harvard as the great quintessential American research university, it's because of this guy, because he was, he, was, he was the person who made it so. He was the one who made Harvard the, the, the leader in the field of American higher education. He also hated team sports. He didn't like baseball. He didn't like football. He thought it encouraged young men to to conduct themselves in ways unbecoming of gentlemen. Right? He thought he thought a pitcher who threw a curveball was engaged <laughs> in an act of deception, and and that and that a sport that required referees was unfit for gentlemen because because gentlemen shouldn't require these these adjudicators could shouldn't require other people to settle their differences gentlemen should settle their differences among themselves sort of it's a bizarre idea by by our way of looking at but there, there there there's there's a there's a there's something quaint about it as well at any rate he despised the violence in football and his solution was to ban it he wanted he wanted to get rid of the sport he wanted harvard to eliminate it he couldn't do that because the game was really popular with the students and also the board of trustees <laughs> and the alumni liked it so it was, a, it was a political dispute on his own campus but he had the faculty with him and they wanted to dump uh they wanted to dump football from harvard everybody knew that if Harvard got rid of football, a lot of other schools would follow, and that would imperil the sport. And so this this concerned people who 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 loved the game and and wanted to preserve it. John J. Miller with us, author of The Big Scrum: How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football, also director of the Dow Journalism Program here at Hillsdale College. This discussion about football. Um, does that in some way bring about the creation of the NCAA at that point? Exactly. So in 1905, when Theodore Roosevelt was president, he summoned to the White House the, the coaches of the three biggest football programs in America, which were Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. So a lot has changed since then. <laughs> you know, today it'd be what, Alabama, Clemson, and, you know, some other school. Yeah. At any rate, he summons them to the White House and he says, uh, in a private meeting, he says, football is on trial, and I would like you guys to try and solve its problem with brutality. He didn't tell them what to do. Uh, he didn't regard himself as a football man. He was a fan, but he was not a player. He didn't coach, nothing like that. But he said, you guys have a problem, and you need to do something about it. To make a long story short, uh, the season ends, and the, the the Harvard coach was a guy called Bill Reed, and he took he took Roosevelt seriously and, and wanted to reform the sport. He also understood that the president of his own college posed a unique threat to the future of football. And so he created a, a, a new rules committee that, uh, that, that wound up superseding the one that existed for a long time and one that had resisted reforms to the game. He created a new rules committee that adopted a bunch of features, including making the personal foul a, a heavily penalized infraction. Mm -hmm. They created a neutral zone at the line of scrimmage. They moved the yardage necessary from, for a first down from five yards to ten. Every one of these things, which, which we now recognize in the modern game, every one of those reforms was done with an eye toward player safety. The big innovation, though, was they adopted the forward pass. Because up until that time in football, there were quarterbacks, but there were no wide receivers. You could toss the ball backward laterally, but you could not throw it downfield. And, and people had been talking about this reform for a number of years, and they thought it would make the game safer. They mm -hmm. thought it would open up the game. You'd right. use more of the field and so on. But it always met with resistance from this, from this old rules committee. Well, Bill Reed's new rules committee adopted the forward pass. And uh, the, the, the body that did this, this football rules committee that was invented for this purpose became the NCAA. Uh, and, and, and so that's, that's, that's the birth of the NCAA. It's also the birth of this really exciting element 
in the game of football. In fact, the thing that distinguishes it most from the sport of rugby. You know, when you watch rugby, it's, it's kind of like football, you know, and <laughs> yeah, I, I right. never quite understand the rules. It's sort of fun to watch. I don't really know what's going on when I when I watch it, you know, but they can't throw the ball downfield. Mm-hmm. This is this is the one big difference between rugby and American football. There are others, of course, but this is the most obvious and noticeable one. Um, and the miracle of of this reform is that it did make the game safer within a number of years the the deaths just just plummeted uh and 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 then and the 10 years later nobody was talking about banning football so so this reform combined with the others really helped the sport improve and also made it a lot more exciting yeah the 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 passing game is such an important part of football you can't even imagine american football without a passing game now but it's such an exciting element to the sport so it's a it's a wonder of an innovation that made the game safer and more thrilling for fans to watch for people to play those rules changes and the forward pass in a way, do they pave the way for professional football very soon down the road? So professional football does come along. It starts to develop in the 20s. And then, of course, by the 30s, 40s, and 50s, it has really, it has really uh, uh, taken off. But, but this, this would, all the emphasis at, at this time was on big-time college football mm-hmm. and, and reforming it for the safety of the players in that era. John J. Miller with us, director of the Dow Journalism Program at Hillsdale College and author of The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. Uh, final question, we go forward 115 years or so to present day. Uh, the NFL has had this ongoing discussion about CTE and head injuries in the league. Popularity of the league seems to be as high as ever. However, youth participation is down. You look at high schools and grade school football participation do you think that football has a similar problem today to what they had around 1905, or have they sufficiently addressed what's been happening the past five, six years or so? So there are similarities and differences. The similarities, of course, is that is that there's this this great concern for the for the safety of players and and a desire to do something about it. Uh, lots of differences, of course. Uh, many more people are playing football. Mm-hmm. The game is the game is as popular as it was back then. It's it's much more popular now. And and the threat to it now is not so much from from a you know people want to ban it. I mean you 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 do hear that you you do hear these 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 suggestions and so forth that we need to ban the sport. But the real threat I think comes from the sorts of decisions that 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 parents right. and children and families will make together. In other words, the, the the parents who encourage their their young kids to play soccer instead. Uh, not because they like soccer more, but because they think it's maybe safer for the kid. And it also have all the same kinds of benefits that, mm-hmm. that, that a sport like football can deliver. Um, we, the, the, the data on this are, are emerging. It does look like there is, is a little bit less participation in football than there was a few years ago, although it's, it's certainly not gone off a cliff. The game remains uh, quite popular, and uh, we'll just have to see what happens. John J. Miller, director of the Herbert H. Dow II Program in American Journalism at Hillsdale College and author of The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. Thanks for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Up next, we'll talk with Kim Strassel from the Wall Street Journal about her new book, Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. To get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook at the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. We're joined now by Kim Strassel. She is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, also a member of the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. And her brand new book is out now, Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. Kim, thanks for joining us. It is a pleasure to be here. I usually ask authors where they find the the, the kernel, you know, that seed to begin a book. This one seems relatively obvious, I assume. It's just looking at uh, what's been happening these past couple of years. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, though. When the publishers first came to me, they wanted me to write about the Russia collusion narrative that got blown apart. And 
I, I said, you know what? I think if we're going to do a book, you have to instead ask the question, how did we get to a point where the leadership of the FBI thought it was remotely appropriate to start a counterintelligence investigation into a, you know, a, a viable political campaign, a presidential campaign? Um, and the answer is that, you know, somewhere along the way, they're, they're dislike for Donald Trump convinced Jim Comey and a lot of others in the country that they didn't have to follow all the usual rules anymore. And that's been doing a lot of damage to our institutions. Yeah, on the FBI specifically, you mentioned the counterintelligence investigation. How has that harmed our institutions? Do you believe there is a road to recovery for Americans' trust in institutions like the FBI? Yeah, one of the things I tried really hard to do with this book is to document uh, the rules and the traditions and the norms that were broken by the sort of resistance to Donald Trump, but then also explain how that has harmed uh, institutions and the country. And the FBI is a good example. I think two things happen there. First of all, if you look at the the top uh, leadership of the FBI, it's just been the agency has been completely hollowed out. Because all of these people were engaged in this, uh, we've just had you know more than a dozen senior officials, uh, years of knowledge, all either be retired or fired or be reassigned because of their actions. So that's been problematic for the agency. But more important is just the dramatic fall off in trust among the public in this law enforcement institution that used to enjoy a great deal of respect especially among conservatives, especially older conservatives. Mm-hmm. You know, there is just a, a, a crushing disbelief that, that people can trust the FBI anymore. That That's bad for the country. Kim, you mentioned, you know, breaking the norms. We, we hear all the time from the resistance how President Trump is breaking the norms, how he's totally throwing away the, the rule books, how he's, how he's messing with the country's democracy. But it seems their response is to take that to an even higher level. What, what are we seeing? What norms are we seeing thrown aside by those in the resistance? Yeah, so I try to make the point that, look, I agree Donald Trump is norm-breaking, okay? <laughs> <laughs> We've never had a president quite like him before. But I try to draw a distinction in the book between rhetoric and demeanor. And if you really objectively look at Trump, that is most of what he does that is not in keeping with prior presidents. Um the damage I'm talking about in the book is, is something, I think, much deeper and worrisome from the left. So you can go through a whole string of things, look at what's happened to the respect for the FBI and the Department of Justice and what's happened in those agencies. Uh, look at the norm breaking in the current impeachment process, uh, where we're not having votes, where we're not defining articles of impeachment, where we're talking about letting whistleblowers uh, testify in secret and where the White House is being barred from the process of being able to call their own witnesses or, or put forward their own evidence. That's not in any way how we've done it before. And impeachment's a serious tool. We're making light of it. Look at the Senate confirmation process and how mm-hmm. that was wrecked with the Brett Kavanaugh um, confirmation. Look at the bureaucracy and what it's been doing to try to sabotage, in some ways, the Trump administration um, and how that also inspires the public to lose faith in our civil bureaucracy and civil society. These, I think, are, are going to have some lasting consequences for the country. Kim Strassel is with us, Wall Street Journal columnist and member of the editorial board. Her brand new book, Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. You mentioned Brett Kavanaugh, and I think that whole process was very eye-opening, even for some of us uh, on the right. What do you think the confirmation hearings that fight revealed about the goals and the strategies of those who are resisting the Trump administration? Yeah, we're seeing it again and again. And I think that gets, again, to the, the rules that were broken. Um, you know, you, you look at you, when you looked at the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was run by Chuck Grassley at the time, you had members that were withholding information from the chairman, members that were uh, releasing uh, committee sensitive information in violation of committee rules. 
Um, you had outside groups that were uh, throwing about uncorroborated accusations and media that were publishing those uncorroborated accusations, uh, that, which is, to this day have never been corroborated, all a, a complete abandonment of normal standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what it showed is that there's this mentality among the resistance that because they despise Donald Trump and they view him as atrocious uh, and that they believe they have some moral calling, that they are allowed to trounce every rule and break every norm in their desire to remove him from office. And that's really the point of the book is saying that that mentality, though, is leading to a lot of damage. Kim, uh, the cover of the book is striking. It's a, it's you know it's a mob with uh, pitchforks and and flames following Donald Trump. As I look at it, I kind of assign uh, one of the Democratic candidates to each of those figures on the cover chasing Donald <laughs> Trump. Uh, have all of them sort of bought into this resistance strategy? Do you think there's any of them that have an idea about how to really take on Donald Trump? I think they have all. I don't know if I'd say they bought into. I would say that none of them have had the courage to buck their progressive flank, which is demanding that they be on board with this. Right. I mean, we've even had now Joe Biden, who claimed to be the, quote, more pragmatist or moderate candidate in that crew, come out and now say that Donald Trump has betrayed the country and needs to be impeached. Um, I, I think the Democrats ought to think about this very hard. And it's, it's not just that they're buying that line, but the progressive ranks are also pushing them to take incredibly extreme liberal positions on pretty much every issue that's out there. It's not getting as much attention as it needs at the moment because everyone's focused on this impeachment drama in Washington. But at some point, that impeachment drama is going to be over and it's going to be Donald Trump versus one of these candidates. And every one of them at the moment is far out of line with kind of average American thinking on most issues. Kim, I want to talk a bit about the media because um, it it seems at times there is nothing happening in the country at all other than what Trump says, Trump does, Trump did last week, what he might do next week. There is really a a, a hyper-focus on the presidency at this time that I don't know if we've seen in previous years, in previous administrations. Why do you think that is so? Is it merely a response to, to ratings? Is, is there is there a, a rooting interest on behalf of the media to see the resistance succeed, or at least to see them be, be buffered by their efforts? Why is this? Well, I included a whole chapter in the media in my book, and I actually say in it that I, I've never really been one to be a media critic, okay? But I don't think that you can ignore the media's behavior in the age of Donald Trump. Um, I've been doing this now for 25 years. I've never seen anything that remotely approaches their uh, their behavior with regard to this president. It, it used to just be the press exhibited bias. I mean, mm-hmm. by the way, they express bias always against every Republican president. I think conservatives just know that that's baked into the cake. But this is an active joining with Democratic partisans to try to take down a presidency. And you saw it back with their coverage of the the Russia-Trump collusion hoax, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, they were entirely wrong about in the end for years. Uh, You saw it again with the way they piled on with Kavanaugh. And they're now doing it all over again with this impeachment thing. Look, the, the central charges that Democrats are claiming that somehow there was a quid pro quo, the clear transcript shows that that was not the case. Um, and yet we're, you know, we're now getting, again, reams of newspaper articles about derivative Ukrainian figures. And it's all designed to kind of cover this administration in some, you know, dark cloud. But uh, again, it's not necessarily it's not healthy for the country. You look at the degree to which Americans have also lost confidence in the media. It's pretty hard to have lower approval ratings than Congress. And yet the media does. <laughs> Uh, Kim Strasso with us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Resistance at all costs is the book, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. Uh, what can what can we do, what can the average American do, Kim, to perhaps stabilize our country, and if it is breaking, to stop it or at least begin to repair it? Well, I think one thing that people have to do is find themselves better sources of honest information, Right. Uh, you can turn on 
CNN, you can turn on MSNBC, you know, you can turn on any of these stations and you're going to get snippets. And I think what worries me is uh, there's a lot of really uh, great Americans out there that are informed on politics, but there are just as many who, and I get it, they're busy with their lives, they're busy with their kids. Um, and so, you know, they occasionally, you know, turn on the cable station and get it. And, and if that's how you're getting your news these days, you're likely not getting a very uh, accurate summary of the situation. And so I think we just need to work harder to to be aware and to be good uh, citizens of the country um, and, you know, to vote with the true facts in hand. With this cancel culture that we now are discussing, do you think that, uh, again, Trump supporters or just regular Americans are, are more hesitant to speak their mind, are, are more hesitant to say what they believe? And, and is the resistance and, and their methods and, and their objectives also playing into that? Well, it's certainly designed to intimidate Americans out of engaging in the civic process, and that is deeply disturbing. You know, and, and there's so many more forums now for people on the left to attempt to shame you. You know, on Twitter, they they troll you. Uh, you know, people have gone, you know, go out to restaurants. We've talked about people being scared to wear a, a mega hat out in public. Um, you know, and they, they shame you on TV. They shame you everywhere. But, you know, I think everyone needs to remember that this country belongs equally to all. Um, and everyone gets a voice. Um, and the only way you ever stop bullies from intimidation tactics is to stand back up to them. Um, and, you know, I, I think we've seen that. This has been a coordinated campaign for a lot of years among the left to try to to, to change the narrative and shut down anyone who disagrees. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I think we've all got an obligation to push back against that. Kim Strassel, Wall Street Journal columnist and editorial board member, and her brand new book, Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. Kim, thank you so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thank you for having me, Scott. Up next, we talk rhetoric with Hillsdale Assistant Professor of Education, Ben Beyer. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. For more information about Hillsdale College for potential students, for alumni, or friends, head to hillsdale.edu. We're joined by Dr. Benjamin Beyer, Assistant Professor of Education here at Hillsdale College. Dr. Beyer, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Scott. Uh, We want to talk uh, about a a specific part of the trivium today, which is rhetoric. Uh, What we're doing right now. (laughs) What's the best definition of rhetoric as, as we want to discuss it? You know, so if, if I can cheat and not answer your question, I want to offer two. Okay. Uh, what, but are the, what are the two best definitions? There you go. Thank you. No, the, but neither are mine. So uh, the the first is from Aristotle. Uh, he, he says, uh, let rhetoric be defined as the faculty of discovery of the available means of persuasion in reference to any case whatsoever. So let's, uh, let's unpack that for a moment. Uh, so, so rhetoric is is a, a faculty. That is, it's a, a distinctly human power or or capacity, uh, but but one that right we we have to to dev, to develop. Mm-hmm. That's right. We we can kind of you know ha- we, you halfway find your way without studying rhetoric. You know that you know if you want your parents to let you borrow the car, you probably took your mom flowers. Right. You, right, you, right. you, had, you had a half sense of of what it was, but but there's actually right a as an art, it has certain principles or rules that can be studied so that you can strengthen your your rhetorical capacity. That's that's all he means by by a, a faculty of discovery. So, what does it discover as opposed to other human faculties? The the available means of persuasion. So, I, I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit more. Right? Mm. What what are some of the particular right. strategies or, or ways uh, that that one can be rhetorical? And then finally, in reference to any case whatsoever. I think that Aristotle is trying to communicate right, that rhetoric is always situated. Right? It's always going to be between a particular speaker and a particular audience at a particular time. And so that's going to 
to color everything. It's not simply right, a logical truth that is the case mm-hmm. in or out of context. So you mentioned Aristotle, and from him we perhaps get an answer to this question. The five canons of rhetoric or the uh, the phases of developing persuasive speech. Yes. So the, the these are a, a little underdetermined in Aristotle. He speaks clearly about three of them, and the, the Romans kind of take it further and really set it as the five canons of rhetoric. Uh, they're often called invention, organization, uh, style, memory, and delivery. So to illustrate those... Uh, you might think if I was trying to persuade you to to grow in self-knowledge, I might borrow uh, from Socrates and the Oracle of Delphi, and I might say, know thyself, hmm. Scott. And and so right, invention is the actual, right, the, the argument, the ideas, the evidences, right, which, which are pretty straightforward in a, you know, a two or three word right. act of persuasion that I've just, just given. Uh, so, so there's that, the, the idea or the arguments, but then organization, I could have said thyself, no, or know thyself, <laughs> right? The, the, the rhetorician always has choices and has yes. to make sort of a, a prudential probable choice. So I, while I think we might be able to understand thyself, no, probably know thyself was the better choice in, in this case, but just think about organization, uh, on a, a micro or a macro level, if you're given a long, giving a longer speech then style i think is actually really interesting with this example so you can think style has to do in part with with diction so what are some alternative word choices right obviously know yourself mm-hmm. rather than thyself and well what's what's the pros and cons right so thyself communicates sort of a a grandeur or a height for what I'm trying to communicate is a noble task, right? Like this is worth doing. It's not easy to come to self-knowledge. But on the other hand, you use thyself and there's a, a danger that your audience perceives you as as out of touch yes. or, you know, just in, in love with you, one's own voice perhaps. And and so that that's a bit of a, a tough choice, right? Know, know thyself or, or know yourself. Uh so again, right, I need to learn a little bit more about my audience to, to know which is the better style there. And then memory and delivery. At certain moments, uh, memory was really, really important in the rhetorical tradition. Uh, in Roman courtrooms, if you if you spoke from notes, it was <laughs> highly looked down upon, for example. Or what are, even uh, teleprompters back absolutely, then. Absolutely. Really go. frowned upon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but even now, and, and your example is perfect, right? So when when someone gets a reputation as being just on the prompter, totally uh, you know unable to speak clearly when the prompter malfunctions, mm-hmm. so so we we still appreciate someone who who has a good memory, and you can imagine in, in your mind, right? If I was looking down at my notes, hesitating, speaking slowly, oh. that I, n- 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 know thyself, right? That that would have a, a different effect, and and delivery clearly is is right along with that mm-hmm. so you know are you going to give a accusatory point out towards the audience or are you going to sort of you know almost sort of gra- grab your hand hit both your hands in towards yourself to to invite them into this task that's shared right like i the speaker i'm seeking to know myself you ought to do yours that that's just going to have a very different uh it's going to be received in a very different manner than if you instead just uh, wag a finger out at <laughs> at the person you're speaking to so i mean that that's the idea idea that in any situation right a speaker would would think about right how he could use these these five means of persuasion mm-hmm. to try to to reach an audience with a particular goal in mind dr benjamin Byer with us assistant professor of education at hillsdale talking rhetoric what are the three types or the three branches of rhetoric yep, so aristotle says that there's there's three branches of rhetoric they are the the judicial so that which concentrates on the past you know he's saying especially about in the courtroom uh, will often consider matters of truth and falsity. Then there's the epideictic, which is just a, a fancy word for rhetoric of praise and blame. Aristotle thinks that, loosely speaking, that'll have to do with the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he doesn't quite say this, but w- we might say it has to do with re- with beauty and and ugliness, uh, you know, virtue and and vice of of someone. And then there's deliberative rhetoric. We, we might say political rhetoric. Mm-hmm. You know, they, on the Senate floor, someone's trying to persuade about a policy and how it will affect 
the future. Uh, and so, right, the good or the expedient are, are what's in play there. So truth, beauty, goodness, past, present, future. Uh, in some ways, when Aristotle talks about them, they seem very, very narrow mm. and maybe not inclusive of all that we consider rhetorical. Uh, but then when you give them those uh, tags of truth, beauty, goodness, past, present, future, one can see, oh, well, well, almost anything sure, sure. can be rhetorical. And then what are the three different rhetorical appeals? Yes. So I, I suspect many of the listeners have probably encountered these in one way or another. I think in, in high schools, these are often mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so they are uh, logos, ethos, or ethos, <clears throat> and pathos. Some people say say pathos. And so that's appeals to, uh, to logic, to a speaker's character, and to the emotions of the audience. And so if one was studying the, the liberal art of logic, the focus would be almost entirely on the first of those three. And rhetoric says, right, yes, we, we need and want that, right? We, many people today, when they use the word rhetoric, aren't thinking of that which is logical. Right, right. right. Yeah. Rhetoric is often used as a byword for the, the lies and tricks of one's opponent. That's, that's surely not what Aristotle has in mind, <laughs> and, and hopefully not what we're teaching in classical education. Uh, so, right, logic is an important component, but Aristotle appreciates that human judgment isn't narrowly logical, right? That we also judge weighing the character of a speaker, how he or she presents him or herself and what we know from outside, uh, and that emotional appeals are, are very powerful. Uh, it's it's St. Augustine who I think articulates most clearly, right, there's this difference between trying to get an audience to to agree to a truth, right, to nod, nod ahead in a sense, right? That, that, that might not require a pathos or an emotional appeal. But Augustine says, right, if you really want the audience to do something, mm-hmm. right, to, to actually stand up out of their chair and act, not just agree, that's uh, especially when, when pathos uh, can be helpful. I mean, of course, pathos, I think, is the one that might make some people ill at ease, right? Like, well, that's that's people manipulating me or, or tricking me. But but I think what Aristotle might say is, uh, and I'm borrowing from, from a, a friend, Scott Kreider here, uh, who speaks of Aristotle in this way. Aristotle would say, uh, you know, does the, the stirring of my emotions warp my judgment or improve it, mm-hmm. right? So if, if you kind of use that as a, a test for a pathos appeal, you know, I receive a, a piece of junk mail from, from a charity, and maybe at first I'm really frustrated. Oh, come on. Why are you doing this to me, right? That I'm assuming that I'm being manipulated in a way that's warping my judgment. But then perhaps I actually start reading the literature there, and I see this is actually a legitimate charity, people in need who, uh, you know, who I have the means to help. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it's a realization, right? Well, Dr. Byer's a fool. And, <laughs> and in fact, right, th- this stirring of my emotions made with this picture of a, a starving child in this case wasn't warping my judgment, but it was actually sharpening or, or refining it. So rhetoric can, can use this, this ethical appeal to emotions and character as well as logic to really reach, right, not just human minds, but the whole of, of a person in the audience. I'm sure you've seen various polls or surveys. People generally are afraid. They don't like speaking in public. They don't, they don't like taking part in rhetoric generally. So how do you work to develop these qualities in students? How do you make them comfortable enough with themselves and what they want to say and how they're saying it to, to do it? You know, it's a great question. And, and certainly, right, each individual is disposed differently with different talents and different levels of... Uh, a fear, uh, but but admitting that, I think that the rhetorical tradition gives this great resource of what's called the the progymnismata exercises, which are these scaffolded exercises that can sometimes be written, sometimes be oral, and it starts really really simply. You know that you you read a story. Traditionally, it'd be a fable, and uh, you know so students hear or or silently read a fable, and then they simply just have to to narrate it back. And then right from from something as simple as that you can just scaffold and build up, you know, now narrate it back, right, in a shorter way. Mm-hmm. Right? You ha- you actually have to digest and and summarize. Now expand it in a way that just doesn't 
sound like you increasing your word limit to, to reach the finish line. Uh, and it just, you know, now use that fable as an argument from example in the service of a, a larger thesis, a larger, a larger argument. And it, it can grow and grow and grow. And it starts so small and with something like a fable that most children enjoy that, uh, that I think that, that incremental way of proceeding, mm-hmm. uh, and just, uh, Repetition, right? Just in the classroom, low stakes, putting people on the right. spot in front of their their peers. That that even a few students who maybe weren't disposed in the first place to be speakers realize this this is actually kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Benjamin Byer, Assistant Professor of Education at Hillsdale College. Thanks for joining us on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. You bet. Thanks, Scott. Up next, we'll bring you some music and speeches from the recent dedication of the new Christ Chapel on the Hillsdale College campus. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. On October 3rd, 2019, Hillsdale College marked its 175th anniversary with the official opening and dedication of our newly constructed Christ Chapel. The dedication featured music from Hillsdale College students, an address from Clarence Thomas, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, and remarks from Hillsdale President Dr. Larry Arne. We first bring you into the dedication service with music from the Hillsdale College Chamber Choir. Hillsdale College President Dr. Larry Arn with remarks on the occasion. The question is not, why have we built this? Does it call out to you? When you walk in here, don't you look up and think of the ultimate things? The answer to that question is obvious. The hard question is, why have others not? It's not expense. More expensive building. This is expensive building. More expensive buildings than this are built every year on college campuses. It's not lack of example. Any old college campus, or any almost any, has buildings like this to look at. Why do they not emulate them? That would need to be some powerful cause, something to obstruct that. I think it is the most powerful cause. I think it is a turning away from things that are beautiful which means necessarily then also things that are true and things that are good. When the truth and the beauty and good are gone, then of course all reasons that demand we strive to become good human beings are gone. And with those reasons disappear the justification and requirement for human freedom. Also go all the precepts that guide us to the use of our freedom towards civilization. It is as if a plague has come over the land. And that plague has destroyed many colleges, and if it proceeds to its culmination, it will destroy this one too. But that will not happen. And finally, we hear from the Honorable Clarence Thomas, Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, with his thoughts on the dedication of Christ Chapel. The word dedicate in this context means to set apart and consecrate to a deity or to a sacred purpose. To appropriately dedicate this this chapel, then, it is worthwhile to reflect on the purposes for which we are here. We're setting apart this sacred place on a college campus. The primary purpose of a chapel is to provide a place where man can enter the presence of God. It provides a sanctuary in which man can 
withdraw from the chaos of our world and seek a sacred stillness. For as Elijah learned on Mount Horeb, God so often comes to us, not in the storms, not in the earthquakes or fires of life, but in stillness, in a gentle whisper. Accordingly, men and women have long sought respite from the noise and commotion of life, daily life, where they can be still and know that he is God, where they can seek an inner calm and a transcendent peace. Beautiful chapels such as this one provide that sacred space for stillness, a place for an encounter with the divine. As the architect of this chapel has written, when you enter a church, it is as if you are entering through a gateway from the profane toward the sacred. It is difficult to overstate the significance of the role that this particular chapel will play in the life of Hillsdale College. Many of life's momentous events take place in chapels. Take weddings, for example. When a couple enters into the sacred covenant of marriage, they do so not only before friends and family, but also before Almighty God. When the wedding is held in a chapel, the chapel exalts the occasion and signifies that God himself is a witness to the couple's exchange of vows. Or reflect on funerals and memorial services. As we grieve the loss of a friend or family member, and reflect on their lives, we also seek comfort, hope, and peace. Conducting that solemn service in a chapel reminds us that our deepest needs are met through God, who is near to the brokenhearted, the wretched, and the lonely. And as we are drawn to reflect on that eternal life beyond the grave, a sacred space such as this chapel with an image of the cross, that old rugged cross, serves as a poignant testament to the hope of the resurrection. Chapels also provide a space for other important activities that take place on a more regular basis. For example, worship services will be held in this chapel. If our highest purpose is to glorify God, what better resource to provide on a college campus than a chapel that allows students, faculty, administrators, staff, and visitors to gather together for worship and prayer. This chapel also will serve as a setting for ceremonies and liturgical concerts, allowing all who gather here to learn together and celebrate before God. And the chapel will <clears throat> the chapel will be used regularly for personal prayers of reflection, meditation, confession, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Chapels are particularly important in providing a place for the burdened, for the brokenhearted, and despairing. When life is difficult and seems pointless, we need a safe haven where we can escape from the storm and find solace. Chapels provide that setting. They invite us to draw near to God and to elevate our thoughts, to seek his wisdom, to lay down our burdens at the foot of the cross, and to find that peace that surpasses all understanding. For here we know we are standing on holy ground. In the words of a popular gospel hymn, when I walk through the door, I sense his presence, and I knew this place, this was a place where love abounds, for this is a temple. The God we love abides here. Oh, we are standing in the presence, his presence, on holy ground. We continue with more from Clarence Thomas, Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, 
on the occasion of the dedication of Christ Chapel on the campus of Hillsdale College. Beginning in the early 1900s, many elite private colleges and universities began to face questions about the continuing relevance of religious instruction on campus. These questions would have surprised the founders of those schools, many of which were created in part for the express purpose of providing religious instruction. But as time went on and schools moved away from their religious roots, the relevance of religion to higher education was increasingly questioned, and campus chapels in particular came to be viewed as relics of a bygone era. With the completion of Christ Chapel, Hillsdale College has staked out its position in this debate, and its decision serves as an example for all of us. The construction of so grand a chapel in 2019 does not happen by accident or as an afterthought. Christ Chapel reflects the college's conviction that a vibrant intellectual environment and a strong democratic society are fostered, not hindered, by a recognition of the divine. Hillsdale College affirms with the writer of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. By constructing this chapel, the college upholds the continued importance of its Christian roots, even as it respects the rights of each person to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience. Our country was founded on the view that a correct understanding of the nature of God and the human person is critical to preserving the liberty that we so enjoy. John Adams wrote, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He recognized that the preservation of liberty is not guaranteed. Without the guardrails supplied by religious conviction, popular sovereignty can devolve into mob rule, unmoored from any conception of objective truth. As I think about our political culture today, I am reminded of Ronald Reagan's warning that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have, we have known, is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them to do the same. Each generation is responsible to both itself and to succeeding generations for preserving and promoting the blessings of liberty. Faith in God, more than anything else, fuels the strength of character and self-discipline necessary to ably discharge that responsibility. That is why I am so encouraged by the con construction of Christ Chapel. Those remarks from Clarence Thomas, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, at the Christ Chapel dedication on the campus of Hillsdale College. That will do it for this edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Our thanks to John J. Miller, Director of the Hillsdale College Dowd Journalism Program, Kim Strassel, her new book, Resistance at All Costs, Ben Beyer from Hillsdale's Education Department. We talked rhetoric with him and remarks and music from the Hillsdale College Christ Chapel dedication. Remember, you can hear new episodes of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour every week on this station. You also can find extended versions of some of our interviews on our podcast. Find it at SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify. Just search for the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. You can follow the show on Twitter at Hillsdale Radio or on Facebook at the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. To find out more about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu. Until next week, I'm Scott Bertram. And this has been the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour.